Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this evening. I've got a great stream with a great guest that I think you're really going to enjoy. So we've seen, of course, uh, American Ramadan kick off here. It's had a lot of different uh, battles back and forth, though, this year. Usually this thing kind of comes and goes uh, without much fanfare other than, you know, getting all the corporate propaganda in your face for the next month. But we have seen a bit of a shift this year. There's been some pushback. Uh, there's been some question about whether Pride is really as popular pe as people think it is, whether there might be a popular backlash that's been building up for a while, why this might all be occurring. And discussing this with me today is Inez Stepman. She is the host of High Noon, and she's over at the Inter, uh, uh, oh, sorry, Independent Women's Forum. Uh, thanks for joining me. Yeah, at least you didn't say international women's forum. Was, that's where I was going. Organization, yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah, we're not that. Uh, but but yeah, it's definitely been it's, it, it has been a bit of a white pill pride month, I feel like. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. So I guess we can start with just kind of the boycott phenomenon. So I'm somebody who remembers a lot of these throughout the years. I grew up in kind of a Southern Baptist household, and I remember these boycotts against uh, you know, Johnson & Johnson and Disney and these different companies that would kind of push back against family values or make decisions that kind of Christian conservatives weren't big fans of. And they tried to organize these uh, these boycotts, and they just went nowhere. They did nothing. They never had an effect. Uh, you know, they, they were tossed around for a few months, and, and nothing happened. This year, it seems like it's a little different. We've seen some pretty significant uh, drops in valuations for companies like Bud Light and, or sorry, Anheuser-Busch and uh, Target kind of off of these uh, these boycotts. We've seen a sustained effort from conservatives. They, it's not just going away after a week or two or a month of it. It's really been continuous. What do you think that uh, made it kind of stick this time around? Yeah, I mean, that that's an interesting question itself, and I'm not really sure quite what the answer is um, in terms of why this was seems to be the straw that broke the camel's back for a lot of people. I do think the trans issue directly has a lot to do with it, and particularly trans issue as applied to minors, um, but it seems to be broader than that, right? So you, you I, I've noticed a lot more sort of muted response from corporations, even around putting up the rainbow flag or, or sort of the Pride Month stuff in a way that even a year ago, I just remember my inbox being inundated, like every single company that I've ever bought, you know, an appliance from or or um, any minor trinket from sent me just an explosion of rainbows and naked men dancing, you know, um, and, and I really have noted, it's like notably less this year. So as to why this finally tripped off a serious boycott response on the right, um, I, I can't say. I mean, I was fed up with this kind of stuff a long time ago. So I, I, I think maybe a, somebody who just got fed up would be a better better person to ask. But I, I do think it, it points to two important sort of structural things. One, woke capital the the corporations right the the they're both an incredibly powerful piece of the leftist coalition and i would say on the political level the swing from corporate of corporate america away from you know sort of culturally neutral but but vying for their own interests um financially through the republican party swinging into the democratic party and then really asserting cultural interests um has been the most powerful sort of uh aspect of of 
cultural leftism in America is getting the great American corporations on board with it and not just tacitly, but actively where they were lobbying um, in state legislatures against culturally conservative pieces of legislation. They were leading, um, you know, capital strikes against entire states that crossed the cultural left. Um, it's the reason that we saw so much capitulation, especially among small red states to a lot of this stuff, um, is because they're, they're corporate donors and they're not even just donors, but large job granting institutions within the state. We're telling them we're going to pull out of your state over these cultural issues. And that has been very powerful. But I think what we're observing now is it's also the most brittle and easily scared piece of, of the institutional left, right? Whereas I think it would take, it will take a lot more um, to scare, for example, universities away from their political and cultural commitments. Um, you know, woke America, woke American corporations are still looking at the bottom line at the end of the day. And I think there's been a combination of this backlash actually happening and sort of the end of a, a um, several years of an incredibly high profits and bottom line, um, especially for corporations like Amazon, for example, during the, the pandemic, um, that have really insulated them from any kind of, of, of backlash in terms of some of their political commitments in the last few years. And we're seeing kind of an end to that gravy train. But yeah, so I think it's possible to say that they're both one of the most powerful mechanisms of enforcement for the left, but also the easiest to still scare in a way that academia and, and perhaps, you know, actual government bureaucracy is not. Yeah, I don't think you could scare academia away from those commitments without a bulldozer. But I do think that you're you're right that woke capital does. Uh, I think a lot of the people there do believe in this stuff. I think they are in in some ways true believers. But they are they can get that direct feedback mechanism uh, of the bottom line in a way that, like you said, the government uh, and and you know may, uh, maybe education those kind of things don't immediately feel that impact. They don't immediately see stock prices fall, they don't immediately see large, you know, consumer boycotts, those kind of things in exactly the same way. And so it's understandable that these would be members who at least need to cool kind of this mechanism down. They 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 need to to slow it down a bit. I think that you're right that the the kind of the transgender uh, issue, especially targeting children, did play a pretty big part in making this stuff unpalatable. Um, I think a lot of people, like you said, may have already been fed up with it to some degree, like yourself. But when they kind of saw that this was, this was targeting children, that this is kind of full blast at them in this uh, nonstop way, I think that it pushed a, a lot of people who otherwise would have just sat on the bench or wouldn't have um, wouldn't have really made a big uh, fuss about this to to start actually taking some level of action. I think also the fact that particularly the the, the Bud Light one. Uh, kind of came with a with a meme uh, that that attached to it. It, it had something that uh, kind of signaled a status. You know, the the guy at the end of the bar who's ordering a Bud Light is no longer one of the guys. He's now some uh, a subject of ridicule. It's it's something that kind of sticks with people in a way that like, oh well, we don't go to Disney more because they don't support our family values. I mean, you would hope that people would kind of make decisions based on that, but it doesn't, I think, have kind of that that uh, visceral social uh, kind of reflex that the way uh, the kind of the Bud Light boycott did. And so I think, you know, then the the also the kind of sustained effort of uh, kind of conservative activists, uh, usually you don't see that level of focused attention. In fact, you see this a lot uh, in kind of the left wing pre press right now, uh, you know, complaining 
uh, about, you know, guys like Matt Walsh or whoever going after these companies. Oh, they targeted these companies. They, they specifically organized against them. It's like, yes, you know, the, the way you do all the time. But, but they're kind of shocked and amazed that conservatives would have a class uh, you know, of pundits or activists that would actually be able to focus the attention of kind of the, the proles in a way that would actually impact the bottom line of these businesses. Yeah, I think that's all true. So this is not necessarily a disagreement, but sort of adding to, um, I think some of these consumer mechanisms. So the third, the third example recently has been the, the LA Dodgers, right? Where there, there was a serious ticket sale plunge. Um, it strikes me that these boycotts, um, for example, would not be successful in the banking sector, hmm. right? Um, because there are structural reasons why consumer choice. So it hasn't just been that the right has not effectively hung in long enough in a boycott, right? Um, I, I think there's also been structural reasons why those boycotts have been ineffective, even when they have been implemented in the past. And I think actually, I can't remember for what reason, but Kellogg's, I remember there was a, a sustained back in like 20 sort of 12 era, there was a sustained boycott of Kellogg's, right? And then people very quickly figured out that it wasn't just a matter of choosing one cereal versus another cereal in the grocery store, that like all the cereals belong to Kellogg's, right? So there's an element of monopoly power here. And even when there is no actual financial monopoly or economic monopoly, there's a cultural monopoly to a lot of these sectors. So there is no non-woke bank, right? All, all of these, if you take any of the, the major national banks leaving aside credit unions that come with substantial, they're not an interchangeable product, right? With a big national bank. Um, they, they come with, um, you know, basically the, that consumer choice mechanism uh, is not operative because all of these, these companies, let's say, you know, whatever, Wells Fargo or, um, you know, Bank of America, Chase, whatever, like list off the handful that exist, right? If they all make the same cultural decision and they all decide, let's say, to go all in on, on uh, you know, George Floyd mania in 2020, which is largely what we saw happen, um, they can count on all of their competitor competitors to do the same thing. Because they all come through the same universities, they all like hold certain left of center cultural views, right? And this has to do with, to some extent, the economic and class structure of of um, the way that money is now made in corporate America. Um, but they can essentially count on the fact that their competitors are going to do the same thing or something similar. So they're not really worried about pissing off conservative consumers to such an extent as in a market where you have a, a lot of different competitors right? Like beer, right? Domestic cheap beer. There are a lot of competitors and a lot of those competitors have essentially remained silent on these kinds of cultural issues. So there was an easy alternative for people to switch to. Whereas a lot of these, these perhaps more important sectors of the economy, there is this functional cultural monopoly. And the only comparison that I can really think of um, that, that seems in certain key ways to be similar to that um, is actually the, the, um, so-called Green Book South, right? Um, before the Civil Rights Act is passed, at least the 64 Act, as opposed to the one in the 50s, um, the piece with the, the public accommodations piece, right? Because the argument was, well, it's, you know, it's not, we can't resolve this through consumer boycott or any of those kinds of mechanisms because it's not just one hotel 
for example, along a southern route of the United States that's refusing to serve all black customers because of a cultural commitment, that hotel can be sure that none of his competitors in town will be serving that customer either. So there's no like punishment. Right. There's no market punishment that's happening because for cultural or political reasons, all of those hotels in the same area had the same rule. So they weren't there was no way for one of them to sort of get ahead by they would have to flout very serious sort of um, cultural norms and conventions. And that was the argument for public accommodations. Right. Because they, you know, the, the, the response was that you have to actually write down in a book the small number of hotels that actually in the entire American South would serve black customers. And I think that's actually kind of what's going on in a lot of these um, sectors where you only have a handful of big market participants, none of whom actually makes up a economic monopoly, but altogether, let's say, have 90 or 95 percent market share. Um, if all of those CEOs decide to make the same cult, like cultural commitments, you have essentially a cultural monopoly. And then consumer choice and these kinds of boycotts just is not a way of punishing them, right? There's no mechanism for the customer to do that. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I have a YouTube friend, academic agent. He famously did this, tried to boycott Gillette after, I don't know if you remember, they did this kind of anti-man ad a few years ago. And he said, okay, I'm not going to do this anymore. And I, th I think they're owned by Johnson and Johnson or someone that's SE Johnson. And he figured out that basically they actually just manufactured every single possible uh, shaving product, <laughs> you know, that he could, he could get at the time along with the, like most food products and everything else that, you know, household cleaning products and everything. And so the ability to actually kind of boycott those things just because you don't realize how large these conglomerates are. And then, like you said, it's not just that conglomerate, it's all the other ones that would hold a similar position. And, you know, so the, these companies don't have to worry about that. So I think it is important for people to recognize these these structural impacts as well. And I guess that's that's kind of more what I wanted to get into with you here, because I think a lot of people, uh, you know, myself included, are happy to see, you know, a W here in some way. It's, it's good to it's, you know see that some kind of action here took place and there was there was a, a level of win to some extent. But I think most people, I, at least I hope most people is certainly something I've been hitting on my, my channel quite a bit, is that if, if this is any kind of win, and I don't know how to what degree it is, but if this is any kind of win, it doesn't really stick around unless there's real structural change, unless there's real institutional change. And the, the, the momentary victory of getting, you know, the Major League Baseball to switch off their Pride logo on Twitter or something, it feels good. That's a, that's a nice dopamine hit for the moment. But, you know, we just saw, uh, I don't know if you saw that clip of Larry Fink that's been kind of going around Twitter today of him, you know, talking about, you know, BlackRock. Oh, well, you, you companies just have to force these changes. You have to hire women. You have to fire uh, uh, people of color. You have to make these changes. It doesn't matter if the market wants to do this or if the companies want to do this. They have to do this and we're going to force them to make these changes. And when you have, you know, companies or, you know, organizations like BlackRock forcing this into kind of every major uh, corporation uh, in the United States and the wider world, then it's really hard to pretend that one market hit one place or another is really going to completely kind of shift the momentum. Right. Um, you know, th there's sort of the the battle of, and, and I, I'm very much in favor of these boycotts. I think, as you say, as you said, right, like, uh, I think they're a W for us. I think it's important what is put out in the public square. I think it's important that there is a pushback, that there's, it's not just the ratchet is not completely going one direction, that there's actually some kind of blowback for a company publicly declaring itself 
um, for the cultural left. I think that that is a positive development in our politics. That being said, the question is what's actually changing, first of all, even within these companies that are being hit. So leaving aside the structural issue that exists in many sectors, important sectors of the American economy. Um, and I'd add to the structural issue that I was talking about with this cultural monopoly, everything you just said, right? So, um, you know, ESG investing, right? That's something that has to be dealt with on the political level, not the boycott level, right? Um, and and there, there's there's a bunch of other sort of structural reasons why these, these companies are going left. I'll give you another one, is that their workforce increasingly is coming directly through uh, K-12 and university, where their younger workforce is, to your point about earlier about um, who's a true believer and who isn't, the younger workforce are true believers. Yeah. Um, and because of, of sort of the professional managerial way that our economy works, right, um, there's a limited number of these professionals who can do these non-interchangeable creative type jobs, um, for example, coding, right, um, or, or being a, a computer engineer, right? So uh, the, the job pool with the correct skills because of other structural issues with our education system is disproportionately quote unquote true believer right so so that's going to force certain changes from the bottom up in a company even if the ceo is looking at the bottom line and the boycotts and saying uh, i don't know right but it's good that at least there's a counterforce to all of that um but the question is how much that counterforce is actually really changing companies behavior now maybe they don't post the the pride flag on on their um twitter account they're still providing an enormous amount. I know your favorite subject, right? Enormous amount of essentially private patronage to the left with having these enormous HR departments and DEI departments. Um, they're providing a lot of six-figure jobs to people who are essentially political commissars, right? Um, and and they're weighing in in a very direct lobby way um, behind the scenes in a lot of state legislatures. And so the question is how much of that activity starts to go away? And here, I do think, again, this is not to say that the boycott is ineffective. I think it's providing a pressure. Uh, but the question is, to, to what you said, right, how much that pressure is actually converted into something longer term, like dropping their DEI departments, for example, which already the market pressures are, are I'm happy to report from the last time that I went on here and we were discussing this, I think, a few months ago, like in January or something, um, before the major downturn, for example, in the tech sector, happy to report that there is some data now to say that they are starting to cut, quote unquote, the fat in their DEI departments and their HR departments, right? That that a lot of CEOs in the economic downturn are looking at not hiring as many of these kinds of patronage positions. So there are some, there are some positive wins in our sales, but there are a lot of institutional forces against it. And we shouldn't be blind to that fact. Or, or treat this kind of boycotting stuff as though it solves the political problems involved because it doesn't. Yeah, I, I think that's really important. Again, I, I think there is value in this. I think, like you said, it's important to have those those W's. I think it is important to, for people to see that there is no there, there isn't a lack of cost for being a, co a corporation that goes out there and kind of says these things and pushes these things, uh, at least extremely publicly. But I am wondering, you know, there's a there's a debate between me and a few other people about whether the uh, kind of the establishment has the ability to put the woke away, whether they have the ability to ratchet down on this stuff and uh, kind of go back to business as normal, pretending like there's a level of uh, cultural detente, there's, there's a neutrality that can be achieved. 
uh, and they can kind of just return to a more functional system, realizing that the excesses of kind of the woke vanguard might have been necessary for them to secure some level of power, um, you know, maybe maybe blow out the Trump election or something, uh, but may not be good for them in the long term. Do you do you feel like kind of the uh, and then obviously we're talking about a, a, a decentralized uh, kind of consensus here? Obviously, I don't think there's one person who's passing down orders of when this would be ratcheted up or down. But do you think kind of corporate America, the the, the left wing establishment, progressive uh, educational institutions, the kind of thing, do you think they have the ability to kind of regulate themselves in the way of kind of making this stop or slowing it down to the point where it no longer uh, pushes Red America to the edge? Or do you think that's something that they, they kind of have lost control of? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, and I'm not sure what the answer is, but I think the the forces that I listed um, just now in the last answer that I gave, those are real institutional forces. And it would be foolish to think that, um, you know, sort of a few boycotts or or a few W's for the right would overturn those forces. So when there's a generational turnover that is related to the takeover of the education system, Oh, I lost her there for a second. I know she was having a little bit of internet. Um, oh, there she is. You're back there. Back. Yeah, sorry, um, just lost you for about so, 10 seconds. Right. So in the K-12 RP, in the K-12 system, right, um, the takeover was complete at minimum 30 years ago. So we've had 30 years of of K-12 indoctrination from the leftist cultural perspective um, in public schools since since um and and so that that's produced an entire generation and a half of of kids who came through this now obviously there are some exceptions there are some kids who take their values from their family less more than they do from from school and so on but you know overall um indoctrination does work right this this sort of framework of the world as the united states is inherently racist for example does come through in in polling surveys generation over generation um and then, of course, the university system has been obviously left for so long that, you know, William F. Buckley uh, wrote God and Man of Yale seven, oh, more than 70 years ago, um, complaining about the takeover being already complete 70 years ago in the university system. But I think what has made this particularly powerful in the last 30 to 50 years has been the changes in our economic situation where the, the way to get rich in America, um, the pipeline to wealth and power really started to run primarily through um, through these education systems. And, and some of that is a natural economic uh, consolidation of the type of work uh, that Americans were, were doing and selling into a global market. Um, and some of it was direct policy choice, right? Um, I'm here, I'm thinking about making it quote unquote unconstitutional to administer uh, tests um, in Griggs, right? Right. You can't you can't administer a test. So now we have to send people for one hundred thousand dollars to university to make sure that they have like a minimal level of, of intelligence or competence to do a particular job. Whereas before you could administer a test and screen applicants that way. Um, so some of these things are policy choices. Some of them are larger economic forces. And I'm you know not an economist or somebody else can you know, talk about how it, or, or, you know, rehash Burnham of how we moved from sort of a wild west capitalistic economy uh, more in that direction to something that is more bureaucratic and managerial and that, that gives an enormous amount of, of um, both political and economic power to this kind of managerial 
uh, type jobs in a managerial class. Um, so that all has something to do with it. But again, I don't want to de-emphasize how many actual policy choices we've made that have run the pipelines of wealth and power directly through universities. And that I said were captured, right, 70 years ago, right? So all of those things are very real. And then from the top down, you have these kinds of ESG forces within within companies, right? And, and the way that investment capital uh, moves also creates enormous incentives to go woke. So you're getting it from the bottom up, you're getting it from the top down, and you're getting it from the law directly, right? Um, from, from civil rights law. Um, and that has changed. There, there were major changes made in the 1990s. And I, I, I can't remember if you've had Gail Harriet on. Um, no. If you haven't, you should. should and I, I talked through these changes with her on my podcast, High Noon, a, a few weeks ago. And I really think like it's a, a not so much missing piece, but like the, the specifics of the substance are missing in so many of our conversations about, for example, the expansion of the Civil Rights Act and so on. Um, Really, those changes in the 90s made it so that corporations were very vulnerable to large dollar settlements um, from subjective offense on the basis of, of race or sex. And that's really when we start to see for the first time these kinds of words like political correctness and diversity training um, and so on in these corporations, which now is a $1 billion business, apparently, business sector, these kinds of trainings. Um was originally that we made changes to this law in the 90s that made it much, much easier for any aggrieved employee to collect enormous amounts of money or at least to um, drag a company through expensive litigation that they would then be worth it for them to settle um, before they get there, right? Those incentives are all going to still be in place. And so, yeah, maybe they're not going to put a pride flag on their their Twitter account, um, you know, but but HR is still going to be worried, the co you know, and, and on behalf of the company of being sued if any one of the employees in the office subjectively finds something offensive. That incentive is still going to be there. So, I, again, I don't think that these boycotts solve the problem. I think they're a new force that is in our column. Um, and I think that's a positive thing. But again, I think we'd be dumb to to think that like this is you flip a switch. We're going to be able to boycott our way out of all of these structural forces. Yeah. And I think that's that's got to be the job of conservative leadership, those who are actually interested in fighting back against this stuff. And it's really noticeable. I think that are notable that a lot of people don't. I mean, there, it really does seem very clear that even in the this kind of moment of uh, somewhat, uh, you know, uh, positive movement, you know, finally a, a win in this column a long time. We're already seeing a lot of kind of conservatives say, whoa, whoa, hey, you know, we can't, you know, we, we got to return to the pride of five years ago. You know, we got to got to got to roll back to to that point. It seems like there's a, uh, you know, we just had uh, uh, Ramaswamy on, uh, I think he was on, uh, was it MSNBC or CNN, or uh, maybe even Fox News, but he was at, anyway, he was asked, you know, would would you remove the uh, or would you reinstate the ban against you know transgender soldiers in the military? And he's like, oh no, you know that 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 would you know they would be able to continue to serve. And so this guy who has been in many ways um, you know to the right of guys like Trump or other people uh, on this on other issues uh, is is already locking in kind of where this is. And so I think it's interesting that there's. Uh, and I think it's really important for those who are kind of interested in pushing back on this to explain to kind of the conservative voter or the kind of the populist movement that this is something that is structural, that these are long-term things, that this is something that has to 
that has to be attacked through many different avenues and just a a popular boycott here or there the 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 reassertion of the free market in one or two areas is not going to kind of create a, a more popular uh, push against you know all of this stuff that there are far more uh, you know kind of deep seated issues that they have to address very systematically if there's going to be any headway yeah i mean i think this question really boils down to a rather simple division um between conservatives, let's say um, the you can call it the new right, whatever, um, which only represents a, a relatively small percentage or at least a minority percentage of, of even the Republican voting base. Right. Let alone the country at large um, and our various coalition partners. And I, I the little phrase that I keep using and put TM on or whatever <laughs> trade market is, um, you know, the culture war is the big tent. And, and I, I believe that I think there are a lot of moderates and independents um, who are really invested in, for example, issues about what their children learn. I think the the Yunkin victory in Virginia really showed the power of this kind of coalition that includes a lot of, of um, Democrat voters. It includes a lot of independent voters. Um, and it includes a large part of the Republican Party that just, you know, until the last, let's say, five or six years was really not aware, and especially since COVID, was really not aware of how far institutions were tipping on certain cultural issues. So that's a good thing that we have this coalition. That being said, there's a huge split in that coalition. And I, I call it the 90s split, right? Do you believe that the state that we had of, of sort of detente on some of these issues in the 1990s um, is like a perpetuatable uh, situation? Or do you think that some of the commitments that we made in the 90s, but even before that, Right, going all the, I would put it back to the late 60s. I know that, you know, Sarab and Mark Murray will take it back to 1776, right? Um, but I think there's a good argument to be made for the 1960s. We can have that maybe a different time. But regardless of how far you you put it back, right, is that detente in the 90s essentially a special moment in time where all of these forces were sort of not, they were, they were well on their way. Um, but had not yet reached a tipping point within a lot of these institutions um, so that we could have this illusion in the 90s of of normalcy in the way that we related to each other? Or did essentially woke show up five years ago, right? Did we just all go crazy and we were totally fine up to that point, but then a bunch of crazies showed up and took it too far and now this backlash is going to correct that last five years, right? And And that seems to me to be totally out of keeping with the actual anthropology or whatever you want to call it. Uh, nope. Like that uh, a little bit again. Wrong. Oops. Sorry, internet problems. But um but I, I just think it's wrong as a matter of history. And and the most obvious way in which it, it you know that it's wrong is because if you go back and you read social conservatives writing in 1990, they predict everything that happens. It didn't happen, you know, it didn't suddenly come out of a bag, you know, five years ago. These ideas are are intellectually connected. They're structurally connected. The laws that were passed earlier on are connected to each other. And I'll just give one um, very concrete example, but I think it's illustrative of how legally these things proceed. Um, we've had this huge debate now and a huge pushback against on, on the basis of parental rights, right? Um, and especially in the pediatrician's office, um, one prong of that pushback has been, no, don't you dare, like I have parental rights, don't you dare, pediatrician, you know, 
tell my kid or trans my kid without my consent, right? Uh, do, do not prescribe my kid puberty blockers without my consent. Do not, you know, um, to dress my kid by they, them pronouns without my consent, right? As a parent. But the fact is that in that, that medical office back in the nineties and early two thousands in, in many States, we'd already lost that battle, um, over birth control and abortion, right? Where in most States, um, there's some teenage age, some States it's like 14, sometimes States at 16. There's some under the age of majority age where um, doctors are allowed uh, to circumvent parental permission and allow kids to make medical decisions for themselves at an age younger than 18. It's just that the trans procedures have been added to the list of things that have already been taken by that 90s social liberalism consensus out of the hands of parents. So there's not really a sharp line to be drawn between the law on, you know, circumventing parental authority on birth control and abortion and circumventing uh, parent parental authority with regard to puberty blockers. There isn't that sharp line. You know, I think you're right that that 90 split is really important. And I think it, that you're also correct that this, there's kind of this delusion you know, it's like a lot of these people, you know, just look at the 90s and it's like there's a ball and you throw it up in the air and then, you know, kind of gets the, to the apex of its arc. And they're like, oh, well, then balls just live in the air. That's just where balls reside, because that's where I first saw the ball. And it's like, no, there was travel to that point, And now the crash to the ground is the natural consequence of everything. You know, but they're just looking at that thing suspended in the air and saying, no, this is this is just how culture works. And I wanted to ask you about that because, yeah, you, you made a, a good point there. And, and I wanted to get into this because I, I, if I'm I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think you're, you're a, a religious person, really. But you kind of acknowledge something that I think is really important. And we, we've talked a lot about the structural uh, aspects of this. And I think those are all really important. I think it's essential. They don't get talked about enough. But I, I think it is really important for people to understand that this linkage is real and it was predictable. Why do you think that? the kind of businesses and the political structures lined up in such a way with also kind of this moral behavior that was predicted by many conservatives, many religious people in the eighties, in the nineties that then eventually came true. Why do, why do you think that all of those things kind of lined up behind the future that many of these people predicted, but the, the whole time they called it ridiculous. And now not only is it here, but they're embracing it and encouraging it full, full speed. Well, there's one answer that's about broader modernity, and and then there's a short, more concrete answer about the United States. I think, um, and some a very specific vision of the self and rights that really, to my mind, springs up in the late 1960s, and then takes some time to actually sort of grow beyond the fringe, and especially invest itself in academia and in these institutions that then sort of pump out cultural revolutionaries. Um, on, on these topics. So that's one is this, this, this concept of the self, like a therapeutic answer to this larger problem, Nietzschean problem of the death of God, right? And the lack of, of any kind of legitimate authority uh, to assert the good on anything in a substantive way. And I, I think you really see that right in the, the David French versus um, Sorab debates, right? Where you see French constantly referring back to essentially what are small L liberal norms for the adjudication, like the purpose of those norms is how to adjudicate in a peaceful way within the nation, 
these substantive debates that often have moral dimensions to them, but even if they don't, they have they have a uh, substance to them, right? Is this the good or is it bad, right? Is this in the common good or is it not? Um, and and you see this total atrophy of, of the ability of anyone on the right. And I really think, because if you go back to the 1950s, that is not the case. On either side, the left or the right, in, 19, in the 1950s America, this is not the case. You have these substantive moral arguments. Now, you have them within our system that guarantees a certain amount of, of step back from the federal government. But on the state level, you have these substantive moral debates. What is obscenity? Can we ban it from the public square? Right? Um, what should the law be about abortion and the beginning of life? Right. And you have substantive moral debates on these things. And one by one, these issues were plucked out of the public square and out of, of democratic control, whether by the courts or bureaucracy or by this this whatever atrophying of the right to just be unable to assert um, with any kind of authority on pronouncement on moral matters to the point in the 90s where you get this like sort of. Uh, idea of the moral majority of conservative Christians, for example, as being like these, these like nattering women from church that have like, they're just basically mockable um, in the mainstream square, because they're still talking in that language of, of actual moral assertion that has just been banished from the right. Um, and the left gets into this position, by the way, by asserting these liberal norms about sort of, well, I'll say what I believe and you say what, what, what you believe and we'll like adjudicate this as citizens. But once they actually have power, they, of course, like they slam the gates shut on those kinds of norms uh, because it's not actually what politics is. Like you can have a small liberal system that adjudicates in some way these questions and perhaps limits them in some way. But again, this expansive vision of, of, the, of liberalism where there is no legitimacy to these moral debates in a political way and passing, you know, legislation, right, on these moral questions. Um, that didn't exist in the United States until the 1960s. So either we've never had a, a small L liberal state, like until 1968 in America, we didn't have a, a, a small L liberal state at all, or um, you know, this this expansive view of liberalism has seeped into the right um, and replaced what actually makes liberal government in some degree possible, which is the legitimacy of, of basically in a big country like the United States, now 350 million people, you're going to have substantively different visions of the good. And people have to have some political way of determining for the body politic with some legitimacy and authority whatso. So I actually don't see in some way it's related to the religious question, because I think that atrophying is related to, you know, the inability to just say God, God says so. Right. Um, but that doesn't fully explain what happened. Right. Because even when people still believed that God said so, the right sort of neutered itself. And you see this with religious people today on the right, who, who still, like David French, neuter themselves on this question because they think that asserting moral authority in a political way is inherently illegitimate. And that's ne that's never been the case in any society except ours for the last like 30 or 40 years. Well, and it's never been the case anyway. It's just the type of moral authority, right? You were more than uh, able to assert moral authority the other direction. It was only from the Christian right 
uh, where moral authority was oppressive. Moral authority asserted in the name of gay marriage was more than fine. Uh, so, so it's not that moral authority was that, unassertable. That is, that's the case now, and that is the thing that's changed, I think, more recently, right? But if you go back to the 1960s, and this is why I think some sort of libertarian, liberal centrist types feel that, quote unquote, the sides have flipped, right? If you go back to the free speech movement in Berkeley, for example, they are asserting protections based on, on quote unquote, neutral norms when they themselves were in, in the moral minority. They were saying, no, they're appealing to pushing these liberal norms further and saying, no, just don't pass a law about it. We can coexist. Right. And then you do have a flip where the left starts to assert. And I think that was connected to the progression of sort of going from this. There is no truth postmodernism to now the resurrection of, of its own kind of moral authority and religion in this final stage. Or I don't know, final, but our current stage of leftism where they're now very comfortable aggressively asserting moral truths or just not moral truths compatible with Christianity or tr the traditional American way of life. But th they did use that language of neutrality for several decades in between when they were in the minority. Um, and that's why I think a lot of people, and I think especially generationally, if you go back to boomers or so on, they're sort of susceptible to this kind of neutral language um, because that was the appeal, the ask from the left to the right culturally, um, that sort of won. And now we're seeing inevitably that actually you can't take moral questions out of politics. Um, even if you call a moral assertion neutral, it doesn't make it so. Um, but, but the right like still hasn't, I think large parts of the right still haven't caught up to the idea that, yeah, they're allowed to do it too. Like you are just allowed to make a moral assertion. And then there is a, a political, the liberalism, quote unquote, part of this is that there is a political process um, in the United States to adjudicate those kinds of questions. You vote on them in the states. Um, now, ultimately, every political process is a, as a cover for, you know, a substitute for violence, right? So if you have such different visions of the good that you can no longer give grant any legitimacy to the opposite conclusion when it's done through the political process, then you have a breakdown in the political process. You have a breakdown in politics and you have a reversion to the state of nature where people kill each other over these kinds of things. Well, not the state of nature, but it, it is the, it is the, it is the reassertion. We're approaching the Schmidian uh, friend enemy We're we're nearing to the point where the moral visions are so separate that uh, those who hold them can only be the other. Uh, they they can't be they can't be qualified as part of the polity anymore because uh, the things that they hold are so disparate. There's no shared uh, culture across which they can actually have a moral conversation. And if you stop having a moral conversation, the only option that's left is is oppression or outright uh, uh, you know uh, violence. And so you, you're ending you're ending up in a very dangerous situation, but one that people seem to be more and more embracing. It seems impossible for the left to imagine a time where they're not in almost complete control of the moral vision of the United States. And they frame any imposition on their will to completely impose that moral vision as one that is existential to them, which they might be right about seeing as how wild their uh, vision now is. I just want to add something to that because I think it goes to a really important misunderstanding that at least from my perspective, I hear all the time about our politics um, and my friend Alexi Correa had a, a great article um, on on this in public discourse. But there is an extent to which essentially our discourse, but I would say specifically for the, the, the 
for this for purposes of this conversation, the left and the way that they legislate um, and the way that they are pushing people to the wall on a lot of these moral questions, right? Um, there is this element that they just, they don't, it's our politics is actually not political enough because it is emptied on at least one side of this kind of moral assertion that is necessary, um, that our politics aren't political enough because we're not ever actually getting to these questions and we pretend that we can adjudicate all of this through process rather than through substance. Um, there's a danger there because once those those divides, those actual substantive divides become um, sharp enough, right, the political process then gets delegitimized necessarily. And I think that's what we're happening, what we're seeing happen all the time from both the left and the right. Now, and, and, and a lot of that is justified in the same way that Schmidt wrote about it being justified, right? That because, because the, essentially the, the process liberalism um, is not able on its own to stand in for these kinds of actual political questions that inevitably that process becomes delegitimized is not able to sustain itself. You can't sustain the liberal process without some kind of actual way of, of legitimately getting to an answer as a collective polity. Now, in a large mass democracy, right, you're never going to get universal buy-in. Um, and there are always going to be factions and so on. And Federalist papers write expressively about this and how to adjudicate these kinds of, of um, pluralistic problems. But it's like we've forgotten that the substance exists at all. Um, and I think that's really dangerous. And it points to, um, first of all, like we're all like, the um, Alexi Carey used the this great uh, example of the. Have you seen the video of the dogs where they're barking at each other like crazy because there's a fence between them, and then somebody hits the button and the fence goes away, and all of a sudden they like they back off. We've forgotten that you know the consequence of this kind of stuff is violence at the end of the day. Like that's the final. I don't want to say final solution, but but like that's how these things are ultimately adjudicated, right? Um, when there are two conflicting visions of the good within the same polity. Um, so we've forgotten, right. That the fence, the, the fence is there and we imagine that we're barking at each other, but, but in fact, like we are only behaving this way because we're so divorced from the consequences of it. Um, but, but also it points to the sort of something that I, sounds like a contradiction, but it isn't the solution here, the less dangerous path, is actually the more politically, quote unquote, extreme one, right? It is for the right to actually re-engage on these questions. Um, in, in the same way that if we actually had an agenda uh, that, that did go after the institutional power of the left and actually substantively and structurally sort of pushed back against the power that they've been able to add and then use against half the country, right? Paradoxically, that creates that kind of quote unquote extremism is what will save is our only chance in my view to save any of these liberal norms and the kind of peace that we have had based on them. Right. Because if you continue in this direction, you get Franco, right. At some point, the, the part of the country that has substantive answer a and not substantive answer B has to decide, you know, they, they, they lose all faith in the legitimacy of any of, of these, these procedures. Right. And you see that with elections today. Um, and, and they essentially say, well, if you are going to behave as though we are enemies, I will also treat you as an enemy and I'm going to hire my own 
strongman to, and maybe maybe that's inevitable maybe we're we're going the, the the solution is only caesarism right but but to the extent that it's still possible um so it's my dog <laughs> to the extent right. that it's still possible to salvage a lot of the things that these centrists or sort of squishy republicans say they actually want to preserve it is in the aggressive advancement of right substantive politics because otherwise i don't see any way this stops until there's all legitimacy in, in liberal procedure lost. But I, I think that's the problem. I don't think it can be sustained. I mean, Schmidt didn't think liberal procedure could be sustained because it would lead to the total state. He thought that the the basically whenever you have this kind of democratic mechanism, the only way for one faction to continually assert its dominance over the other is the capture of all institutions, is the collapse of all other social spheres. Every Every sphere has to become political because total control of all spheres is the only way to maintain the popular sovereignty uh, kind of mandate. And so I think that that's why you're seeing conservatives back into the corner in the way they are, because every institution for you know progressives to kind of push things to the extremes that they're doing must be completely captured and must be unable to kind of allow even uh, any kind of substantive pushback, any kind of substantive politics from the right. And so I think that's kind of a, a necessary feature, uh, unfortunately. Uh, but I wanted to ask you one more thing before we kind of get to the questions of the people here. That kind of goes back to the mechanical uh, part of this. Uh, I know you're familiar with James Burnham and the managerial uh, you know, revolution, uh, but I don't, I don't know how familiar you are with Sam Francis. He wrote, took up a good bit of uh, kind of James Burnham's work. And while, of course, Burnham does a great job of explaining kind of that transformation from uh, kind of the bourgeoisie capitalist uh, uh, style of uh, kind of Western governance to the managerial governance. I think Francis does a good job of explaining kind of the cultural side of it and the revolution that it goes through and why that's mechanically necessary. And his contention is that uh, kind of managerialism requires the destruction of all cultural and moral particulars in order to make subjects uh, more compliant and more predictable to make sure that managerial systems can be readily applied uh, kind of across the board. And so that he, and he kind of believed that you basically needed a leftist progressive kind of cosmopolitan hedonism, the kind of gray goo everybody's moral particulars into one large managerial block. And so he thought that just as you need a economy that can produce you know, mass and mass and scale uh, for managers to thrive uh, in the expansion of those institutions. You also need basically the dissolving of uh, of kind of culture and morals and religion into kind of one uniform hedonism. If you're able, if you're going to be able to kind of manage people on a social level, and that's kind of why he thought that we were seeing the process along with managerialism that we were seeing. I didn't know uh, kind of what you thought about that thesis. I probably have to think about that more um, before I give you an answer. Uh, not that, you know, my answer compares to some of these um, prescient guys uh, decades ago. But what I will say is is necessary in a, a bureaucratic and managerial both society and economy is that certain virtues, um, let's use the word virtues, uh, certain virtues are inconvenient. Um, right. So here I'm thinking about, uh, you know, even, even within like, let's say, let's just say the pursuit of glory, which is something that, you know, motivated 
mostly young men um, in most civilizations, right? And, and like, I don't know, comparatively, the Roman civilization, right? You had opportunity for glory as a soldier. And that was actually like a great part of your advancement, um, at least in, when, you know, at least some parts of, of Roman history that we like to read about, um, right? That was a huge part of, of how you advance in society is by demonstrating courage and, and grabbing glory and ambition in that sense, right? In a bureaucratic society, you don't want that. Um, you, you want consensus building and attention to procedure. Um, and and there's, there's more collective decision-making that is, is necessary and also a certain abstraction of accountability, right? Um, because <laughs> there's that Futurama um, episode where, where uh, the bureaucrat says like, you're, you're technically correct, the best kind of correct, right? Mm -hmm. That's the essence of the bureaucracy. Um, and look, everything requires some amount of bureaucracy. Back in the, the um, founding era of the United States, Jefferson was complaining that Hamilton's um, Treasury Department was bloated and bureaucratic because it had 23 employees. That's laughable to us today. And and I do think there's this element of mass, mass society, mass nation. Once you expand beyond the city state and like sort of the classical political philosophy of the, the city state, right? You do need some amount of standardization of bureaucracy, of best practices, right? To be able to make either an economy or a political unit work on that kind of scale. Um, but there is a question of tipping points. And so, for example, I think it's pretty obvious that that um, what people are calling the longhouse or whatever online, right, the feminization of certain institutions is related to them being bureaucratic, right? You're going to get more women in positions of power when decision making is diffuse and less accountable and not direct, directly related in a concrete way to the end product. In the same way, you're going to get more of those kinds of values, whether from men or women, um, in a large managerial corporation where you're not worker A on the line and you are responsible for 20 widgets by the end of the day. And if you if you produce 18, your pay is docked. And if you produce 22, you know, your, your pay is, is um, granted. Or like... Um, you know, Andrew Jackson had like 20 jobs, right? Because people in the 19th century, they would gain and lose fortune sometimes, you know, three or four or five times in their lives. Um, that's a direct accountability mechanism. But in a bureaucracy, that kind of direct accountability doesn't happen, right? When when the end product, and this is why, you know, the DMV is so frustrating or whatever, right? There's There's nobody who's directly accountable or invested in the end product being XYZ. Everybody's responsible for their little piece of the procedure in collection with everyone else. And that necessarily elevates people with certain, you can call them quote unquote virtues, um, that are probably disproportionately feminine ones. Um, look, some of these things are virtues, right? Uh, uh, attention to collective decision making is a, a big virtue in a family. It keeps harmony in a family to some extent, right? Um, but the question is, are they then well applied in an economy um, or do we, is it good to have the kind of economy that rewards collective decision-making and harmony over say glory and production? Um, so I, I do think these things are related in other words, but I, I would have to think specifically about what Sam Francis had to say about it or whoever, whoever else sure, had to sure. say about it at, at longer length. But I do think there's a connection between the type of virtues that are given honor in a society 
to use language that seems in our bureaucratic society seems completely uh, sort of anachronistic in itself, right? Um, those that set of like character traits that are elevated in that kind of society. So instead of building centurions, you build Pete Buttigieg in the kind of economy Terrifying. that we yes, have, but, right? Yeah, right? So, I mean, there are massive downsides to that. I think we're seeing a lot of the downsides to that. No, I, I do think that's exactly right. All right. So we've got a number of questions building up here, but before we pivot over there real quick, uh, can you tell people where to find your work? Is there anything uh, exciting people should be looking for or any, anything they should check out? Sure. Um, so uh, you can find my work at IWF.org along with that of my colleagues. Um, we do work a lot, for example, on Title IX, uh, which I think is, is really important. Um, some of the stuff, again, you have to be able to work out through the bureaucracy, but I think we were instrumental in actually grinding the like putting throwing sand in the gears of bureaucracy over um, Biden's Title IX changes that incorporate gender identity into the word sex. Um, we have officially they have they have delayed um, implementation of those regulations because there were so many comments in part driven by IWV, our sister organization, right? Um, in part, in large part, driven by IWV and and some of our other coalition partners that we have a formally made them like they, they can't get through all the comments. So they're going to have to delay the regulations, which hopefully will take them past the election. I don't know. Anyway, so that's the kind of work we do. I, I really um, recommend checking it out, iwf.org. Um, and then for me personally, you can find me on Twitter at Inez Felcher, F-E-L-T-S-C-H-E-R. Or you can type in Inez Stepman and I will come up, but the handle is different. Excellent. All right, guys, let's check out the questions of the people here real quick. Uh, just from Creeper Weirdo here for $2, the 90s split right on target. Yep. No, that's, she's exactly right that that is where I think the fault line is inside the kind of woke resistance at the moment. I had a talk about that with uh, Seamus Coughlin, by the way, if you guys want to check that one out as well. Will the, will the anti-woke coalition hold? Uh, that was a few days ago. You can check that out. Uh, Creeper Weirdo here again for $5. I feel like a lot of centrists just want to go back to watching Star Wars, reading comics, playing video games, and they don't want real change. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's obviously true. The, again, we a lot of people felt like there was a moment where uh, they kind of had the ability to kind of indulge in whatever kind of cultural uh, excess, hobby excess, whatever they enjoyed. They didn't have to think about real life. They didn't have to worry about mm -hmm. the questions of the political. Uh, history was over. Those things had been solved. Uh, there was no need for anyone to really get involved in that. Uh, but then they stopped you from playing your video games. And so now you watch people like us. So, you know, it's, it's, that's a positive <laughs> Possibly good uh, development there. Uh, let's see. Uh, Judge Lot here for $10. Thank you very much. Uh, glad to catch you live. I don't get to very often. Yeah, it was. Uh, it's always great when we have kind of these evening streams, uh, different groups. Normally, I go live around 3 in the afternoon. But, of course, uh, glad that different people can tune in uh, for these as well. Uh, Jacob here for $5. Who are the three little bus on the bookshelf? Uh, we got Jackson here. Lincoln and Jefferson is Jackson, Lincoln and Jefferson. Gotcha. All right. I knew I saw yeah, Jackson, one in George there. Washington, but it's not behind me. It's big. Gotcha. <laughs> uh, let's see here. We got uh, $2 just uh, donation from Unmeal. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, let's see. Thuggo uh, for $5. How much uh, the left success is culture war is facilitated by money and power as opposed to philosophical creep? Well, I think we definitely touched on that uh in our discussion here but i think obviously uh Inez is pretty good at going through and explaining kind of those mechanisms those funding mechanisms those structural mechanisms uh the way that kind of money is is involved and uh you know of course we both like to talk about how patronage is involved 
So I think those are huge. I, I think the mistake is always pretending it's one or the other. Uh, you know, we usually see uh, people settle in. It's oh, it's all ideology, or it's you know, it's all money, and they don't really mean it. Uh, I think it's it's remembering that it's a, a bit of both. But I, I don't know if you want to expand any more on that, Inez. But just just to add, and I think we we did touch on this, but but just to add um, one concrete thing, a lot of the ideology that people talk about, ideological creep, the thing that funds, let's say, the Bernadine Dorn types who are in the universities then pushing out sort of their intellectual heirs into all these institutions, right, um, is largely public money. So the left has been funded, whether through grants or through direct things like $800 billion to the K-12 system every year annually, right? They have a huge pot of money that they're reaching out of the public fisc. Um, and the right has always been, quote unquote, privately funded, but until the last decade or two and that success of that revolution, right, um, the right previously had the funding of big business. Now, maybe even that wasn't obviously wasn't really a parody because um, oftentimes big businesses donate to both sides anyway. They, they you know, they want to have access no matter who gets elected. Right. But there was some kind of parody in our politics in terms of the money in our politics, because the left was getting this enormous public investment. The right was getting a big business investment. Now that the big business has swung into the left. Right. On the, on almost all of these cultural questions. And the power of that has swung into the left. And maybe this is where boycotts, I think, can make a difference if, if um, it scares companies out of, of doing that. You have a massive money imbalance. But I think the other way to correct that imbalance is for the right to actually claim its portion of public funding. So that's, I mean, one way to think about school choice is not just exiting the system and allowing parents the, the freedom to do that, but is also thinking about taking the money that is now currently going to a leftist institution and hoping to invest it, let's say, in a classical school. Because there's no reason that that the right half of this country isn't owed its its education dollars. There's nothing, you know, written in stone that says we must give all of our eight hundred billion dollars in tax money uh, to these leftist controlled institutions. So in that case, it's a way of of, of siphoning some of that public investment and making it fair on the basis of how many people in society want, you know, want this kind of ideology versus that. So I think that's, that's a, a, maybe not a permanent solution, but it is, it is an incredibly important solution of siphoning public money away from leftist causes. But that you, depending on where you, you know, where you're looking, the solution might be that like the practical solution might be different. It might be just, you know, cutting grants or giving grants, for example, in the arts to like right-wing artists from, from a lot of these arts foundations that are, are funded with public money, right? So I, th I think we just have to think more about grabbing our part of this public investment because um, sort of staying away from it on a libertarian ideological basis um, maybe, maybe worked for some time while there was this huge big business private investment. Um, obviously didn't work that well because that's where we are right now because we are here right now, but like to some extent worked. But now that that private investment is down to individual billionaires, there's just no way the right can compete financially with the left unless we're willing to to take our piece of public investment, I think. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the the revolution revolution was subsidized, guys. like you you paid for it. And you know the the approach of saying, well, you know, we're the party of small government. We're the size of small government. Well, that's nice in theory. I wish that was true. Yeah, I get it. If you shrink the the size of the government pie, then they wouldn't have a lot to give to people. But the success rate of that is basically zero at this point. And so you have to start thinking about, okay, well, if this funding is going to exist and it's getting, you know, just funneled directly to my enemies, how can I break the flow of this and redirect some of it to my friends? Uh, you really have to start understanding that 
the the pillaging is like I, I'm sorry, like I, I'm gonna just make all the libertarians uh, very angry night right now. But uh, state pillaging is the most enduring thing next to the existence of like I don't know religion and family in human organization. It will continue for the rest of your life and the life of everyone you know, every every child and grandchild and great grandchild you have. And so the only question is, in whose favor is it done? And I know that's tough. I know that's not what people want to hear. You would like to reduce that as much as possible. I would too. But there is just a, a reality that you have to deal with and you have to become comfortable with the idea that if these funds are going to be appropriated and they're going to be distributed, distributing them in your direction is far better than just saying I'm principled and I'm never taking a dollar of this and watching it all go directly into the coffers of your enemies. I mean, so to add, I do think there are prudential concerns here. Um, you know, there there are smart ways to do this and, and dumb ways to do it that will, will backfire um, even more strongly. Um, but I also think like as a way of convincing libertarians or centrists who are uncomfortable with this, um, there needs to be guns pointed from both directions in order to convince people to disarm, right? There's a sort of mutually assured destruction element to this that actually if your goal is to, let's say, reduce the amount of public money that's sloshing around in, in sort of all of these, these political fights, right? Um, if that's your goal, let's say a long-term Republican and libertarian goal, getting rid of the Department of Education, right? Something that Reagan came into office saying he was going to do. The department was created in the last year of Jimmy Carter's term. Reagan was not able to get rid of it for eight years, okay? And it had, was on, only a year old at that point. So we don't have a great track record in getting rid of these things. To the extent that I think it's even theoretically possible to get rid of some of these departments, it's probably exactly through participating in them equally that you can then push the left to a point where they're like, well, we really hate what Republicans are doing with the Department of Education every time they get in office, right? Um, of course, this depends on sort of elections continuing and different parties actually winning them. But leaving that aside, right, you can imagine a situation in which the left actually decides, well, maybe it's better for both of us to disarm. Maybe it's better just to get rid of the Department of Education. Um, but that's not going to happen when there's no risk to the left when Republicans come into office, right? So like to some extent, if your goal is to get rid of some of these things, politicizing them and using them on behalf of the right may actually be what gets, you know, sort of both sides to stand down. Yeah, I don't know if I have a ton of faith in some of these mechanisms of democracy, but if you have faith in them, at the very least, you have to make a, you know, a serious threat the other direction, right? Like you're saying, you have, you have to actually participate in a way that would make the other side want to not invest power into the government if you believe that that's actually what's going to hold these things at bay you can't just you know uh kind of kind of play it safe on your side and expect them to do the same all right uh creeper weirdo here with our last one again thank you very much sir uh is this uh the right-wing backlash or the beginning of the backlash also do you think it will stay with boomers or millennial and zoomers get involved uh that's a difficult question uh i i'd like to um, try not to be too too blackpilled here i think in a lot of ways uh we just hit uh kind of the last gasp of natural revulsion to the inverted moral hierarchy that the left is uh assembling i think the attack on children the direct attack and the uh the aggressive push for mutilation on children kind of triggered the final self defense mechanism that existed you know the, the the last the last reflex that people had left that of that's been worn away i really hope that's enough for people to start to see where we're at and how kind of close to the edge you are and how necessary it is to kind of push 
back and fight. Um, but I think that uh, there is a danger in that this too is kind of circumvented in the way that so many of these other sub social revolutions were by pulling this out of the democratic mechanism, like Inez was talking about and just putting it into the procedure. And that just kind of ends up being the last bit of, uh, of kind of that battle. I really hope that's not the case. I really hope that the, you can see that there is for the first time in a long time, a substantive pushback against this stuff in a way that you, we just have not seen pretty much in my lifetime. Um, but, uh, but I would say that things are, are a little closer to the edge than, than I'd like. So uh, two, two, brief things to add the first the first would be um it depends how the backlash is consolidated sure. uh, strategically politically structurally how that backlash what that actually does because there was a backlash against gay marriage right people want to forget like even in california they couldn't pass gay marriage right it was right. voted down um but now if you look at polls right it's completely shifted because the institutions over time they don't they, if you hold the institutions right you just sit tight and wait for the generational turnover and for institutional turnover and for a backlash to dissipate just by, you know, realities of democracy and, and the fact that people don't have time to constantly be like angry about this stuff. Right. Um, so you can just sit and wait, whereas it's on the backlash to then consolidate this this into a structural and political result that changes the balance of power going forward. And the, the last thing I'll say about this is you, you say boomers or millennials and Zoomers who've forgotten about Gen X. I'm millennial, but I'm like a Gen X booster. The the political sort of survey data on Gen X is that Gen X is going much more conservative than Boomers were at their age. In other words, they're they're moving off the baseline in the right. And I think that's why the next generation of, of leadership on the right is almost all Gen X. And the next generation of leadership on the left is going to be all millennials, right? In the Democratic Party, it's going to be a handoff from, you know, Nancy Pelosi to AOC. Um, in the Republican Party, there may be a handoff from Boomers to right? Your Josh Hawley's, your Ron DeSantis's, your, um, you know, sort of next generation, J.D. Vance, right, is also Gen, Gen X. Like you see a lot of the, the Gen X, Tom Cotton, right? A lot of the Gen X leadership, I think, is representative of the fact that the Generation X is going quite right wing. Now, they're still pretty normy, like by our standards. But um, in terms of generations, don't forget, they are small, but don't forget them between the boomers and the millennials comes Gen X. Yeah, no, I, I I think that might be true. I sit uh, right in that uh, sweet spot between uh, Gen X and, and Millennial. So uh, I, th I think there might be some truth to that. But all right, guys, I think we got everything here. Let me just double check to make sure we don't have any more Super Chats. All right. Yep. I think that is everybody. All right, guys. Well, I just want to say thank you to everyone for coming by. Once again, make sure that you're checking out all of Inez's stuff. Make sure that you are, of course, also uh, making sure to subscribe to this channel if it's your first time here. And if you would like to get these broadcasts as podcasts, make sure that you go ahead and go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe to the Orrin McIntyre show. When you do, make sure to leave a rating or review that really helps with all the algorithm stuff. All right, guys, thanks for coming by. And as always, I'll talk to you next time.